The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to start in verse 1 together. Our title tonight uh, for Easter 2018 is Hope for All. Uh, Unless you live in a giant bubble filled with laughing gas, you have probably both observed and experienced this sad and harsh reality. Our world is not as it should be. There is so much pain and hurt and brokenness and darkness that sometimes having any kind of real hope seems like something only a fool would do. But is this true? That's what I want to ask tonight. Is is hope the opiate of the simple or uninformed? Or is it possible that true hope is the only right response to the reality of our collective situation? Many, when posing that question or being confronted with that question, would rather find a comfortable spot on the fence and kind of perch there indefinitely. But as we read these scriptures, we're going to see that we should either... Rejoice in hope or utterly despair because there is no fence here that allows for indifference. We're going to read 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 19 together and uh, we'll see what all the Lord has for us. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 1, here we go. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand. By which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. But some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped 
in Christ in this life only. We are of all men most to be pitied. Praise God for his word. The answer to the question that I posed before we read these verses hinges on the answer to another question. That question is, the first question is, should we hope or despair? We've got two options. How we answer that hinges on this question. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Whether or not hope is for fools alone or for all of us comes down to this one thing. Is the whole gospel true? If it is, there's hope for every human. If not, there is hope for no one. You may be thinking, but isn't that too narrow? What about science and technology and human ingenuity? Look at what we can accomplish. Can we not hope in these things? There are many amazing things that we can do and problems we can solve with the ability to think and to create with the minds that God gave us. But if we take a humble and clear-eyed look at the world, no matter how civilized or advanced we fancy ourselves to be, we cannot rid the world of the pain and suffering that sin has caused. When the Bible talks of large-scale, humanity-wide hope, it's different than we sometimes think about it. There are two major words translated in the Hebrew Old Testament as hope. One is yaka, and the second is kava. Uh, both of these words mean to wait, but kava also has a connotation of waiting anxiously. Like if you take a, sh- a rubber band and you stretch it all the way to the point where it's about to pop, like that feeling you have right before you know it's about to go, that's what kava is communicating. And, and these two words are found throughout the Old Testament and especially in the Psalms. In Psalms like uh, 130, Psalm 130, uh, verses 5 through 7. It says, I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than the watchman in the morning, indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption. You see, the Bible speaks of hope that is placed in God. If you go throughout the Bible, you'll find the The largest proportion of times there's talked about hope being placed in anything. It's not in people. It's not in circumstances. It's not in this, that, or the other thing. It's hope placed in God. Not in circumstances. And in fact, the Bible speaks of a hope in God in spite of the circumstances. Having real hope is not the same as being an optimist. Some of you can say amen to that because you are not optimists, right? (laughs) Some of you are more on the curmudgeon end of the uh, spectrum. That's all right. I got days too. I'm with you. Uh, But but having real hope, as the Bible describes it, is is not the same as being an optimist. It's more than just believing everything's going to turn out all right. Hope, from a biblical perspective, it it is a deep and unshakable confidence to the point even of anxious anticipation that God's character can be trusted even when it seems like nothing else can. That's the Bible's idea of hope. Now Paul says here, if we have hoped in Christ, 
in this life only, then we should be pitied more than any other poor soul who has ever existed. Do you notice how serious he was? He kept over, he said it three or four different ways. He was saying the same thing. If Christ hasn't risen, you're in serious trouble. It's bad for you. And he goes all the way, the, the, the nail in the coffin at the end is you should be pitied if that's true. But the question is why? Why couldn't we believe some of what the Bible says and not the whole Jesus rolling up out of the grave after three days part? Why, why is Paul saying that? Why is Paul saying throw everything out if Jesus didn't rise from the grave? That's, that's a big, did you hear what he said? I mean, that's a big deal. You mean everything else? Yes. You should be pitied for having any faith whatsoever in this God if Jesus did not rise from the grave. That's a real big call. Now, on the adverse, that's part of why we have a day every year and, and really a whole week leading up to it where we celebrate the resurrection. It's a big deal. In, in the inability to overstate things realm, the, the importance of the resurrection tops the heap. And so I think Paul makes that point here very clearly, and, and he's even more repetitive than sometimes he is in other places to really drive home this point. The resurrection matters. If Jesus didn't rise, so now I'm going to talk to you about why. Why does he talk that way? If Jesus didn't rise, God can't be trusted. If you go back to Genesis 3, we begin to see the merciful, long-suffering, patient character of God uh, right towards the beginning of the story. Genesis 1 and 2, um, God creates everything. It's perfect. Uh, he gives uh, mankind one prohibition. Don't eat the fruit of that tree. What happens? Satan comes along, convinces our first parents that actually what will happen if they eat of that is not that they will die as God warned them, but that they will be uh, enlightened and they will be like God, being able to know good and evil and, and determine that for themselves. And so they fall into this lie that all of us at one time or another have fallen into, that God was withholding some good thing from them, that if they would go ahead and reach out and take it, they could have some pleasure or joyful experience, have experienced some kind of ecstasy that God was withholding from them. That, of course, was a terrible lie. And as soon as they do that, disobeying and rebelling against the God who had given them all they could ever want and more, uh, primarily that being relationship with himself, uh, we see that what God said would happen did happen. Separation happens. Spiritual death happens. Adam and Eve fall under a curse. Immediately they're aware that they're naked and they're ashamed. They, they do know good and evil now. And uh, they're broken because of it. God mercifully takes two animals, covers them in animal skins, and, and then he begins to lay out uh, the ramifications of what just happened. That's Genesis 3. So the curse begins to be laid out in that, um, as he's talking to the serpent, the one who led with the deception, uh, he, said, he tells him, here's what's going to happen. There's going to be a seed of this woman, and you're going to bruise his heel, but he is going to crush your head. And so with almost no delay, from the most cosmic betrayal that has ever happened. I know most of you have experienced betrayal to some degree, form, or kind. I have as well. No, none of us has ever been betrayed to the degree that God the Creator was betrayed by His creation. That those whom He had given, He was perfect to them. There was no justification for that betrayal whatsoever, and yet they turned their back on Him. On, on, as soon as that happened, God is so long-suffering and patient. Yes, He does give out consequences because He's a just God and and so he must, but at this very same time, he's already, he's already showing his hand. He's already beginning to declare what's going to happen. And that, is, that, that prophecy 
uh, is looking forward to Christ. That the seed of the woman, that the, the serpent is going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush his head. That's looking forward to Christ. But here's, how does that tie back to the resurrection? If Jesus didn't conquer and rise from death, then the victory that God said would happen back in Genesis wouldn't have. And if any, get this, you know, this is one of the reasons why there's no fence sitting here. If any of what God says does not come to pass, one thing, he ceases to be the perfectly all-powerful and mighty one that he declares in his word that he is. You with that? God either gets a perfect score or nothing. Either God is totally, perfectly, holy, majestic, all-powerful and mighty. Either he's that or he's not. And we should be pitied. And we should pack up shop. In addition to this, the fact that if Jesus didn't rise from death, God can't be trusted. And, and that, that proto-evangelion, that first gospel in, in Genesis 3, is not the only place God prophesied or showed that that was coming. If you look at Abraham with Isaac, uh, how long does it take him to, to get to the mountain, right? It's, it's three days journey that in Abraham's mind, his son is, is dead. But then on that third day, what happens? Another sacrifice is provided. It's Jonah's in the belly of the fish. How many days? Three days. Again and again and again, God was pointing forward to this better Abraham and better Jonah, that Jesus was going to come and he was going to defeat Satan forever. Uh, and so the Bible is full. That's, that's why, uh, if, if you notice up top, it says, I delivered to you, uh, this is verse 3, as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Did Paul forget he said according to the Scriptures? No, he said it twice so that you understand. This is not just some random thing that happened. This is the culmination, the crescendo of a plan that God put together before the foundations of the world, that Jesus would come and die and rise. And every piece of it is important. The resurrection matters. In addition to all of what's already been said, all of the crucial elements of the Christian faith are only true if Jesus indeed rose from death. I'm going to give you just a few. The divinity of Jesus rests on the resurrection of Christ. Romans 1.4 says this, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. What am I showing you here? I'm showing you the absolute vital importance of the truth of the resurrection. I'm trying to show you here why in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then you should be pitied for putting any faith whatsoever in this Christ. This matters. The very divinity of Jesus rests on the fact that he rose from the grave. That's what Romans 1.4 says. He was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Is the fact that he did roll up out of the grave, that he did conquer sin and death, that his, his divinity, the fact that he is a part of the Trinitarian Godhead, the fact that he's not just some guy that came with pithy statements and fed some people, but this was God in the flesh come to save his people. We see that. We, we see the, the fullness of that. We see the, the stamp of final seal of approval on that in the fact that death could not hold him and that he came up out of the grave. The divinity of Jesus rests on his resurrection. The sovereignty of Jesus rests on the resurrection. This is Romans 14, uh, verse 9. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. 
Jesus is absolutely Lord over all. And part of why he is Lord over all is he's the one that came. He's the one that lived a perfect life. He's the one that died in our place. And he's the one that took the gates and ripped them off the hinges of, of death and hell. He's the one that conquered death for us. Jesus is sovereign, and his resurrection shows us that. Our justification rests on the resurrection of Jesus. This is Romans 4, verse 25. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. The fact that we are justified by grace through faith in Christ alone, that would not be possible if Jesus had not rose. If Jesus wasn't the first one, the first fruits, the first one to take the sting out of death. So our justification rests on the resurrection. Our salvation rests on the resurrection of Jesus. And let me ask you this. If some of you are paying attention, you're linking the author to the references I'm giving you, and you're thinking, well, is it just Paul? It's Paul in Corinthians. It's Paul in these other places that really seems to think the resurrection is a big, important thing. But maybe, you know, maybe it's just Paul. Maybe Paul has a hobby horse fixation upon the importance of the resurrection. Is that the case? Well, I'm going to show you right now that our salvation rests on Jesus' resurrection, and this is from the Apostle Peter. 1 Peter 1, 3 and four, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He said we're, we're born again to a living hope through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Praise God. Our salvation, it rests upon the resurrection of our Lord. Our destiny of final resurrection rests on the resurrection of Jesus. This is Romans 8, verse 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The sovereignty of God. The the fact that we can trust what he says. Our final destiny, our justification, our salvation, all of the major pillars, the tenets of our faith, they they are tied to and they are they're verified by, they are, we, we have reason to trust in these because Jesus did rise from the grave. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said on the matter. The fact is that the silver thread of resurrection runs through all the blessings from regeneration onward to our eternal glory and binds them together. Paul understood that just because Jesus rising from death is vitally important to our faith, and I think we've made that point, hopefully, that Jesus rising from death is vitally important to our faith, Paul knew that just because that's true, it doesn't make it factually true that it happened. We can make a case for the fact that if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, nobody should be a Christian. Is is everyone cool with that? I hope you are, because that's what's said lots of different ways here. 
And we've, we've kind of hammered that peg deep, but that's on purpose. So, but the fact that it, that the resurrection is a linchpin upon which our, our faith is dependent doesn't make it true. Just because just it's real important to us doesn't mean that it actually happened. And that's why Paul, understanding that, he offers some evidence that the resurrection of Christ is not just a myth or a fairy tale. And so we're going to follow Paul's uh, roadmap here as we talk about this and celebrate the resurrection of Christ. And so this, this evidence Paul gives, uh, he doesn't just say it's real important to Christians. He says it actually happened. Here's one way you know. Verse 6 that we read here, it says, he says he appeared to Cephas, he says he appeared to James, he appeared to me as well, and you could discredit that if you're one that thinks the apostles all got together and cooked this thing up uh, to, for whatever end, I can't really figure that out, what they would be going for because they all ended up dying for it. But anyways, uh, so he appears to all them, but then he says, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. So what, do you say? what is he saying there? He's saying... After Jesus rose from the grave, after everybody publicly saw him bleed and die, he rose up out of the grave, he showed himself to his apostles, and then he showed himself to 500 people. And he says, most of those people, at the time of me writing this to you, Corinthians, most of those people that saw the resurrected Christ, they're still alive and kicking. And so what he's saying there by inference is, if you, if you doubt this, go ask them, because a ton of people saw it. And you might say, well, it'd be better if they got a video. They didn't have that yet. So eyewitness testimony uh, was the video of the day. And I don't know how you convince 500 people to lie about it. Why would they? What's it? Group hallucination. I don't know. That's the, that would take a lot of mushrooms. I don't think they had that many. Okay, so there's really not a good reasonable explanation for why Paul's very confident to say, go ask these people other than maybe they actually did encounter the risen Lord. That's, that's, that's what Paul says. And, and, and Paul, I think we would be easier, uh, more prone to discount. When, when he's saying he appeared to Cephas, he appeared to James, he appeared to me, uh, that eyewitness testimony, he's, he's laying down as, as very credible evidence. We may easily throw that out, but in that time, for someone to say, I saw this, I was an eyewitness to this, um, that, that would have counted maybe for more than, than we, we counted for today. Sure, they could have been lying, but man, it just doesn't make a lot of sense because it, it wasn't like uh, they got you know days of the year named after them in a parade because they followed Jesus. Uh, they actually ended up following him to death. So, and and that's, that'll come up here more. So that's, Paul gives that evidence. Paul is cognizant of the fact that just, just because the resurrection is, is a key portion of the Christian faith, that if, if the resurrection is not a fact, then Christianity should not exist. That doesn't make it true. He gives evidence. And uh, so I think that's something we should also uh, be able to do and, and discuss with people. So um, I had an opportunity this week when we were downtown uh, just seeking to love and serve uh, the poor in our city. Uh, we do that every Wednesday. Uh, I had one of the best conversations I can remember this last week. Um, there, there were two young men, they came walking up, and so they come up to the truck, and uh, we served them some beef stew, which was really good, and uh, then I told them happy Easter early. That was kind of my chosen line for the week. I figured it would, you know, get me lined up for the conversations I'm trying to have, so I uh, said, hey guys, happy Easter early. And I asked them what they thought about Jesus rising from the grave. I just went right for the jugular. You know, I, I don't know how long it's going to take me to eat this stew. So let's just, let's just do this right here, right now, right? So 
So what do you guys think about Jesus rising from the grave? Easter was my, my end. So um, the one young man answered first, and he said, he's like, oh, yeah, man, I'm totally with that. And so I think he's in, like he likes it. So I was like, all right, cool. I'm, I'm with it too. So there was that response. And then the second guy said, he's like, no, nah, man, I'm not sure. He said, I don't know if I can believe any of that. He said, I just don't think there's any evidence. And uh, when he said that, it, to me, it felt like Jesus stuck a T in the ground, placed the golf ball perfectly on it, told the wind, be still, handed me the driver and said, son, go on ahead, take a crack at that. I said, yes, sir. Right? So I'm, I'm, this, these, are the, these are the things I live for. I said, so I said, I said, no evidence, brother. I said, there is a ton of evidence. And I just started breaking it down for him. He, he, you know, he, he got that deer in the headlights thing, but I kind of like, I stepped to where he couldn't get away. And I started, I, we're about to do this. So um, I just started telling him, I said, man, listen, when, when you think about the resurrection, there, there are so many things. I mentioned in, in, in um, 1 Corinthians 15, I said, man, there was 500 people aside from the apostles that saw Jesus alive. That's hard to argue with. I said, secondly, man, you got to think about the fact, look at the story, look at, the, look at who these men were, look at how fumbly-bumbly they were leading up to uh, Jesus' arrest and death. Think about how they responded during his arrest and death. Think about Peter uh, denying Jesus three times. Think about all of them scattering in fear. These guys basically were cowards, defeated, not, not knowing what they were going to do, thinking their dream of uh, Jesus rising up as their, their military commander to topple over the Romans. They thought it was all over. It was done. Everything that they thought, they thought what Paul was saying should happen had happened, that they had given their life to a lie and that they should be pitied. These guys were broke down, jacked up, had no hope, and then something happened. Something happened where that group of guys ended up establishing the early church and every single one of them ended up preaching the resurrection of Christ, the full gospel, with such absolute unwillingness to waver that every single one of them, save one, ended up martyred for their faith. And the only one that didn't end up martyred for his faith was put in a vat of boiling oil and it just didn't kill him. How do you take guys that ran and scattered... That, that, that we see described in all of their folly leading up to uh, Jesus' arrest and death, how do we see those guys turn into absolute fierce preachers of the gospel, unwilling to waver or back down in the face of any opposition or persecution, all the way to the point where each one of them dies a martyr's death? It, and, and you can say, well, they wanted to start a fake religion. I, when you start a fake religion, I don't. when people say that, it's like, when you start a fake religion, what you're trying to do is get control and influence over people, typically to fleece them for money and somehow have a, a form of power. These guys got none of that. Paul got shipwrecked and beat a lot, right? These guys all gave up, handed businesses down, and, and their status in the, in the community that they were in, they, they all gave up everything to be a part of this mission that Jesus gave them to go into all the world and make disciples and to share the gospel with people. It only cost them. I, I, just don't see, I just don't see, first of all, the, what, is the, what are they getting for it, right? What is, what is their motivation? It doesn't make a lot of sense. I, I also saw something, uh, my brother sent me something this week from Chuck Colson. He said that Watergate, Watergate convinced him that um, the resurrection was true. He said there was 12 people embroiled in the Watergate scandal, and in two weeks, 
they all had spilled the beans and it was, it was all over the place and nobody could keep their lies straight and whatever else. He said, how do you take, how do you get this many people, man, to lie about this thing consistently for that long? You can't. Somebody would have messed up. Doesn't make any sense. And if you're trying to, if you're trying to uh, get control in a certain cultural context by starting a false religion, you wouldn't do silly things like put into your sacred text that, uh, that it, was, it was women that met Jesus first at the, at the tomb, right? Because in that time and in that place, uh, the testimony of those women would not have been considered uh, worthy to be noted. And so if, if they were really concocting this thing, there was a lot of things they could have done better. There were some details they could have changed. It really would have set them up uh, for a little more acceptance uh, by the culture widely. You don't see that in the Gospels. You don't see that in the book of Acts. It's not a whitewashed, uh, kind of perfectly set up as, as many religious writings tend to be, uh, you see the attempt to kind of scrub it clean, man. It's not clean, right? Like, if, if Peter's the head of this big false religion we're starting, why do we have included in these texts uh, details of him denying Christ, right? If I'm the leader of this thing and I'm trying to get everyone to listen to me and do what I say and give me their money because that's the false religion thing, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to say, hey, guys, we're going to forget that that happened and we're going to put in this story about how I healed somebody or, you know, whatever the deal is, Right? Uh, the third thing I, I said to him is, man, it, it's amazing to me. You, you can by by the attempts people make to discredit the resurrection. Sometimes you can, sometimes they're so bad you can it, it can actually help you believe more in the resurrection. That one one common way that people have tried to say, oh, Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, is they'll say that well, he, it's because he didn't die. And that's that one's painful for me. Okay, the Romans didn't invent crucifixion, but they perfected it. Okay, and if you follow the story. Jesus was beat so bad and suffering from blood loss so badly that he couldn't even carry uh, that crossbar up the hill. He had to have help with that. And then they took him in that condition. Medi- I mean, medically, we would rush anybody we saw in that condition to the ER, and we wouldn't be sure they would make it. Then they took him and nailed nails through the most sensitive nerve centers on his body, hoisted him up in the air, naked and ashamed, and just let him hang there. And to be totally sure, at the end of the thing, they shoved a spear up under his ribcage and pierced his heart sack. Now, if, if you so desperately want to avoid the implications of Jesus actually being Lord, that you're willing to say, it's more plausible to me that after that kind of treatment and being wrapped in several, uh, perhaps several hundred pounds of linen and spice and stuck into a tomb that... What happened was three days later, he woke up out of the coma and unwrapped himself from all of that and then moved the super heavy stone from in front of the... That's, that's probably what happened. Oh, man. Are you serious? If, if that's how bad you got to try to discredit what's going on with Jesus miraculously coming up out of the grave, it, it, uh, it actually, to me, ends up just putting evidence on the I'm pro-resurrection side. And so... Uh, I said to him, listen, my friend, Jesus never held a political office. He didn't conquer any territories. He didn't do any of the things that we normally associate throughout history with greatness. He spent much of his ministry dodging the authorities, trying to kill him. And then once they caught him, he died a shameful and excruciating death, publicly crucified between two thieves. And yet here we are, 2,000 years later, there is no one 
whom more songs have been sung about, who more books have been written about, and who billions of people literally worship. Something happened. Something happened. And it's probably not that a few Hebrews were so smart that they've duped us all. That doesn't seem reasonable or plausible when the evidence is actually examined. I told him, uh, it, it was awesome as I'm going through all this because his buddy was there for the whole thing and he was sitting over there like this and he's nodding at him and smiling the whole time. So I felt, you know, I, I, felt I had an ally and we, it was good. That, that was a fun one. So I, I did tell him, I said, listen, brother, we can't prove anything here, but there's, there's plenty of evidence that would lead a reasonable person to conclude that Jesus did indeed rise from the grave. And that means he was God in the flesh. He was the king of glory. And he was also the suffering servant who deserves our allegiance and our affection. Amen. My friends, these, these verses that we read today, they leave us no middle ground. We either have reason for hope because Jesus did not just die in our place for our sins, but he triumphed over sin and death by rising from the grave. Or we have no hope at all because if Jesus didn't rise, there is no power available to remove the sting of death or restore what sin is broken. My great hope for you today is that this verse would be true for you. Romans 15, 13 says this. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. If by the grace of God, you can believe in the power of the whole gospel, that Jesus lived a perfect life, that he died a substitutionary death in your place for your sins, and then he rose triumphant over sin, death, and hell, then there is hope for you. The whole Bible is full of characters that should have been hopeless, but God filled them with real hope. It doesn't matter today if you are facing impossible odds like Abraham and Sarah when they were told that they'd have a son in their old age. There is hope for you. It doesn't matter if you've been tricked and deceived like Jacob when he worked seven years for Rachel, but he got Leah instead. There is hope for you. It doesn't matter if you've been betrayed by those closest to you like Joseph. There is hope for you. It doesn't matter if you've messed your life up big time like when Moses killed that Egyptian. There is hope for you. It doesn't matter if you've suffered tragedy like Ruth. There is hope for you. It doesn't matter if you're prideful like Naaman. There is hope for you. It doesn't matter if you've been unfairly oppressed like Esther. There is hope for you. It doesn't matter if you've served God with zeal at one time and then sinned greatly like David. There is hope for you. It doesn't matter if you've lost it all like Job. There's hope for you. It doesn't matter if you've run from God like Jonah. There is hope for you. It doesn't matter if you've been caught in the trappings of wealth like Solomon. There's hope for you. It doesn't matter if you think you've got it all figured out like the Pharisees. 
There is hope for you. It doesn't matter if you've stolen from people like Zacchaeus. There is hope for you. It doesn't matter if you've hated God's people in the past like Paul. There is hope for you. And it doesn't matter if everybody thinks it's over for you like they did for Jesus that day when they watched him die upon the cross. Friend, there is hope for you. There is hope for every person. And it's because of Jesus he did rise. And because of that, there is nobody that is ever left out of this promise that if you can believe and you can trust in the full gospel of God, there is hope for you. Whether you're broken or boastful, haggard or happy, whether you are high or low, up or down, whoever you are and wherever you are, if you can trust and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is hope for you. Happy Easter, Love City. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord God, we thank you for these verses. We thank you for Paul's passionate defense of your resurrection. We thank you, Lord, that we can stand up and say, we can acknowledge the fact that, Lord Jesus, if you didn't rise from the dead, we should be pitied. There is no hope for anybody anywhere. But, Lord, I thank you that it is not only plausible, but it is reasonable. Looking at all the evidence that we have, seeing the impact of your life, death, and resurrection upon the world, it is, it is close to undeniable. The resurrection is a fact. Lord Jesus, you did not go into that tomb and stay. Nobody stole your body which you did lay down in death, but three days later you rose. The stone rolled away and you emerged victorious over sin and hell and death on our behalf. We are thankful for this truth. And God, we ask for your help to live in light of it. Lord, help us not only to be people that trust and believe and experience the joy and hope of your Holy Spirit, but let us be people that are constantly telling everyone we can that there is hope for them. Lord, I know there are so many people, some within the sound of my voice, they have fallen into a place of believing they are the hopeless one. They are the one exception to your rule that you're willing to reach and be long-suffering and patient with all of us. Uh, Lord, may anybody that's believed that lie, may that lie be taken captive and may it be cast away as far as the east is from the west. May we not only, Lord, believe the truth in our hearts and minds that there is hope for every person because of Christ, but God, may we absolutely be ambassadors of that hope. May we carry that with us. May we share it with absolutely every person we can. Lord, this, this world, it is dark, and many times it seems hopeless. When we look at the circumstances, God, it seems foolish to say there's hope for every person. But Lord, we're not looking at circumstances. We are looking to you. We are remembering, as the Israelites did for thousands of years, we are remembering your exodus, the fact that you came into Egypt and you laid down and laid waste to the powers of that time that you set your people free. We're remembering your long suffering as your people rejected you and rebelled. We're remembering, Lord, our own rebellion. We're remembering each one of us as we've turned our back on you and yet you've reached to us and you've poured your love and mercy into us, that you've been patient and long-suffering with us. Lord, we have hope because of your character. We have hope because of your promises. We have hope because absolutely everything you have said has come to pass. And because of that, you are the perfect, holy one. Help us, Lord Jesus. Help us to walk in hope, to share hope, and to rejoice in the hope that you provide. 
Lord, we love you. And we thank you so much that you loved us first. It is in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.